And hey, welcome, welcome to Northridge Church, and welcome, welcome home to each and every one of you. And hey, happy Mother's Day. Come on, let's give it up for our moms. Come on, come on. Woo. Yeah, happy Mother's Day to each and every one of you. If you're a mom here today, um, we want you to know how special you are. We want to say thank you for all that you do, and we want your family, guys, Kids, this is a chance, a reminder today, you know, maybe it's you're getting out the massage lotion, massage mom's feet, or you're buying her dinner, you're taking her shopping, and you're just letting mom know how special she is. And today as a church, we want to let every single lady know uh, that you are special to our church. And so as you leave today, you heard it from Kristen, you heard it from Emily Miller and our campus pastor online, that we have a gift for you, just a small gift, the succulent, just to let you know how special, how we want to honor our ladies today. So as you leave, make sure you grab those. And I also understand that today can be a celebration for many families, but also today can be a very difficult day, a day where some people are, are, are mourning the loss of a mom, where some people would love to be a mom, but God hasn't had that in their path yet. And so it can be a very difficult and hard, but also a celebration day. And we just wanted to acknowledge that we understand all of the emotions of today. And we wanted to just say happy Mother's Day to each and every one of you. And you know, it's interesting about moms, right? When I think about my mom and I think about my wife, the mother to my children, moms are central to the family. A mom is, is a central piece to, to holding the family together. And I've always been amazed by my mom and my wife of how they have this uncanny ability. Moms have this un, un, unique ability to them of holding things together. They're a central part of the family. And we're in a book, the book of Revelation, maybe not the best book for Mother's Day, I'm just going to warn you up front, but what's interesting about Revelation chapter 4, the chapter we're going to look at today, is John is going to have a vision of heaven, and he's going to talk about something that is very central to heaven, much like moms are central to the family. So let me ask you this, have you ever had an experience in life that was so amazing, so great, or maybe so bad and so horrible that you had a hard time putting it in words to capture what you experienced. Maybe it was some food that you ate that was just so good, or maybe it was a site that you saw or a location that you visited. Maybe it was a love that you experienced, or maybe it was you trying to describe your mom to somebody else. And as you went to tell somebody about that experience, You tried to capture it with words and imagery to to give people the the feeling of it. Maybe you you, you gave it all the emotion you had, but no matter what you did, no matter what you said, the energy you said it with, it just seemed to fall short of what you wanted it to be. It's kind of like Revelation chapter 4. John gets a vision of heaven, and you can almost see him frantically writing down everything that God showed him, and when we read it, it just seems sometimes to fall short of probably what John saw. So if you got your Bibles, I'd invite you to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, we're three weeks into this series where we're studying the book of Revelation, and we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 today. We're going to look at the whole chapter. I'd encourage you to jump into the Northridge Church app, a great place to take notes and take those notes with you in your community group uh, later in the week to dive a little bit deeper. 
And before we go too far in Revelation chapter four, I want us to understand kind of the outline and where we are in the book. Week one, we kind of gave you this outline of the book of Revelation, three categories we broke it down into, right? The, the revelation of Christ, that's chapters one through five. We're gonna be there today with the heavenly throne room vision. And then next week, we're gonna kind of make a, a turn into a second, the second category, the judgment of God. And we're gonna see God's wrath poured out on evil for the next couple weeks. That's chapter six all the way to chapters 19. And then we get to the glory of heaven, which is chapters 19 through 22. And with that kind of backdrop, understanding where we are in the book of Revelation, let's look at chapter four, verse one. It says this, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Doesn't that sound amazing? i like, lucky John, right? I slightly, when I read this, I'm, I'm, I'm low grade, Jealous that John is the one who got to experience and to see this. I mean, think about this. Like, there before me is the door to heaven. We all dream about that moment. John got to experience it. And the voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And so here in chapter four, John gets this vision of heaven. We're gonna unfold that vision. But what's interesting is what's happening theologically here in chapter one. So John sees the door, it's the doorway to heaven. And the first thing he hears is, sounds like a trumpet saying, come up. And so when many scholars have read this, they've actually come to the conclusion that some scholars believe this is when the rapture takes place. And when I say the term rapture, I mean Jesus' second coming and all believers meeting with Jesus in the air, into heaven. And the reason why some scholars believe the rapture takes here would be a pre-tribulation, pre-wrath view is the words trumpet and the words come up. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever." And so this view of the rapture is a pre-tribulation view before the wrath of God. And here's the problem. Many people read chapter four and they get caught up in the rapture. Is this when it takes place? The problem with that is this is not the point of the passage. Chapter four, I mean, everybody wants to know when the rapture happens, but no one really knows. And my goal in this series is not to tell you when I believe it happens. It's for me to show you the places scholars believe it could happen. And in your digging of the scriptures and your reading of Revelation, you would come to your own conclusion through the Spirit's leading in your life. And so here is one of the spots, a pre-tribulation spot where people think the rapture happens, but it's not the point of the passage. Don't get caught up in chapter one that you miss at what John's trying to teach us throughout the rest of the chapter because the central part of Revelation four happens in the next verse. It says this, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So John has this vision of heaven, and the very first thing that he sees is a throne. And someone is sitting on that throne. And here's what you need to know about the rest of chapter four. What we're gonna read is a lot of symbols, but every other symbol points back to the throne. 
In fact, some scholars believe that the only literal image John wants you to take away from chapter four is the throne. And as he describes all these things that he sees in heaven, you'll notice when we read it, everything is saying like, oh, it's before the throne, or it's from the throne, or it's on the throne, or it's encircling the throne, or it's around the throne. Because John is trying to get us to focus in on the throne. And here's what I know about a throne, and you guys know this. A throne often signifies power, authority. Who sits on the throne is usually the person who's in control, calling the shots. And let's be honest, like if we're real, we all kind of desire a throne. This is my throne, actually, from my house. (laughs) Yeah, that's not a joke, this is the truth, right? (laughs) This is passed down from Ashley's family to our family, and... You know, what's crazy about this chair, it's beautiful, but man, is it uncomfortable. <laughs> I call it my Beauty and the Beast chair, you know what I'm saying? Right there. And if I'm honest, if you're honest, most of us, we, we love to sit on a throne, call the shots, be in power. And the reason why I know this is this is true of all humanity, right? You look at the course of the world. The timeline of the world, guess what the world is? It's, it's wars being waged by people, by men and women. Why? So someone can sit on a throne and be in power. And when John sees the very first thing that he sees in heaven is a throne, it represents that. The throne represents supreme authority and worthiness because the one who sits on the throne in heaven is all powerful, almighty, and is worthy of the praise that is due his name. And so remember, as we read through this passage, John doesn't want you to focus on all the things going around the throne, before the throne. What he wants you to gaze upon is the throne and who's sitting on it. And so here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna read the rest of this passage to you. And I I, I normally would never do this, but I want you to close your eyes. Listen, you're gonna have to open them again, okay? You can't stay there, but I want you to close your eyes, I want you to relax, and I want you to go to John's vision. I want you to visualize and imagine his view of heaven given by God. Here we go, verse three, it says, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. They are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back, The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. You can open your eyes back up. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. It's not Mother's Day unless you talk about like, you know, creatures with eyes and oxes and animals and lions and bears. Oh my, right? Here we are. <laughs> Whew. And, and, and you know what? You read that at home and you're like, what just happened? 
Did I just leave the Bible? What is John trying to communicate to me? And I get that, right? I felt that way when I first read it. I was like, I'm gonna teach this passage? Are you kidding me? But here, what we have to remember as we approach all the symbols that John talks us through, our eyes are never to leave the throne because that is the focus of this passage. And what John does is he paints a picture of heaven by describing things around and front and on the throne. Let's look at some of those. Let's break them down, right? Revelation 4, 3, it says, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. So the first symbol we see is jasper and ruby. These are beautiful stones, stones that a king or a queen would have, stones that someone who is rich and powerful and wealthy would be associated with. And Jasper and Ruby are there. John paints this picture because he's describing the majesty of him who sits on the throne. Jasper and Ruby were often to declare someone to be powerful and mighty. He also, later on in the passage, he talks about the lamb. And this is referring to Jesus. You see, if you haven't come to this conclusion yet, this throne is not mine or yours. This throne is God Almighty's. God is sitting on his throne in heaven, and at the right hand is the Lamb of God, Jesus, who, to, who was slain for us. And so this, this throne here, this, the authority and the power and the worthiness is God alone's. And so on the throne, we see Jasper and Ruby, but uh, John, John wasn't done yet. He says, let me show you some things that are around the throne. He says, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And so the, 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 the second thing John shows us is this rainbow, this rainbow that encircles the throne. And I don't know about you, I love a rainbow. And one of my favorite things is when my kids come and get me after like a really 10 minute downpour and then the sun peeks out and you see this beautiful rainbow in our backyard and kids are like, daddy, daddy, there's a rainbow. God put a rainbow in the sky. And the rainbow, if you go back to the original use of the rainbow, it goes back to Noah, right? When, when God destroyed the, the earth with a flood, he, he put a rainbow in the sky for Noah to see and it was a promise of his covenant with his people that he would never do that again. And so the rainbow in heaven is, is, is reminding us of God's covenant with you and I, his promises that never fail. We also see 24 thrones and 24 elders. And what these represent are the people of God, the sons and daughters of God who are there in worship to him. And it's interesting, if you study the number 24 in the scriptures, you'll see a couple things. You'll see 12 apostles and 12 tribes representing the people of God. You also see in, in the new heaven and new earth, they call it the new Jerusalem in the Bible, you have 12 foundations and 12 gates. And so around the throne is, is, is the promises of God and the people of God, but then John paints a picture of things that are from the throne and before the throne. Revelation 5 says it like this, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like to be a sea of glass clear as crystal. And so here we have a bunch of imagery coming from or before the throne. The first thing that we see is flashes of lightning and thunder. And again, you know this, I, I told you a couple weeks ago, I love a good old-fashioned thunderstorm, right? And the reason why I like it is the power behind it, the boom of thunder and the flash of lightning. And that represents in heaven the power of God. 
right? What's interesting about thunder and lightning is how often it's mentioned in the Old Testament. And remember, I told you week one, in order to fully understand the illusions of revelation, we often have to go back to the Old Testament. Let me show you some imagery of lightning and thunder from the Old Testament. We go back to Moses and the nation of Israel. Moses is establishing through God the nation of Israel. He goes to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. The entire nation of Israel is surrounding the mountain. And look what happens. It says this in Exodus 20. It says, when the people saw, what do they see? They see thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke. They trembled in fear. Why? Because they're registering how powerful God is. It says, they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. We also see coming in front of the throne seven lamps ablazing and seven spirits of God. And this is just pointing back to the one who sits on the throne. It's pointing to the holiness of God. Again, we see imagery from the Old Testament of lightning and thunder and torches and, and things blazing. Look at Ezekiel chapter one. It says, the appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire and like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. You go to Daniel chapter 10, it says his body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs gleamed like burnished bras, and his voice like the sound of the multitudes. And so here we see these seven flaming torches revealing God's perfection, his flawlessness, his holiness. And sometimes when you encounter the presence of God, it is a very frightening thing because out of reverence of how powerful and how holy and how perfect God is. And when you study the number seven in the Bible, it often refers to fullness. And here John is painting this picture as he sees heaven of the fullness of God's church, the fullness of his people, the fullness of his presence. We also see before the throne this beautiful sea of glass that sh shined like crystal. And I think this is maybe one of the, mo the, the, the greatest images that we can relate to the, the most because we, we are surrounded by water here in New York, in Rochester, right? We have the Finger Lakes, we have Lake Ontario, there's water everywhere. And when you think about a sea of glass, John is painting this picture of what heaven's going to be like. He, he says this sea of glass symbolizes the peace of heaven compared to the turmoil of earth. That when Jesus and God are on their throne, they bring peace, not turmoil. And we're so used to turmoil and chaoticness in our life. I mean, you see it everywhere. And the sea of glass is representing the peace that God wants to bring in our lives when he brings it to fruition. And we've seen this before. Right? One of my favorite things to do, summertime, we're getting ready for the warm weather. Speaking of, next week looks absolutely amazing. Praise the Lord. And one of my favorite things to do in summer is to go to my mom's lake house. And every once in a while at my mom's lake house, I'll get up at 5.30, 6, not because I choose to, but because my kids wake me up at that time. And so one of the best views, many people don't get to see it, but you can make a cup of coffee, you go out on the front porch, and it's right when the sun is kind of peeking over the horizon of the lake, and there's like steam on the lake that's burning off from the sun, and you look at the water, and it's not moving. There's not a ripple, nothing. It looks like this giant sea of glass. And that's the picture John gives you of heaven, of how peaceful it's going to be when God is on his throne and evil doesn't exist. We're gonna experience a peace that we can't even fathom. 
And then the last thing, the last thing is the hardest thing. Right, in verse six it says, in the center around the throne were four living creatures. And we often get caught up in these four living creatures and how they're described because many of us are like, wow, did we just leave the Bible and go to Lord of the Rings and are these orcs or what, like what's going on here? Because it's, it's hard to fathom uh, uh, creatures that have wi- like wings, six wings and eyes all around them and one has a face of an ox and a man and a lion. It's like, what, what is going on? But here's what we have to understand about the Bible. These living creatures are not beasts. They are actually called cherubim, and they're beautiful, angelic creatures. And their whole purpose is to attend and worship God. In fact, we see these creatures a lot in the Old Testament. Look at Ezekiel chapter 10. It says, these these were the living creatures I had seen beneath the God of Israel by the Kabar River. And I realized that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and four wings, and under their wings was what looked like human hands. Their faces had the same appearance as those I had seen by the Kabar River. Each one went straight ahead. And what's interesting about cherubim is usually when you encounter the presence of God, there is usually cherubim around him. In fact, when God was establishing the tabernacle and the temple, it was some of the, the, the most central place for Jewish people in the Old Testament, he was designing a place for his presence, right? It was the place, in the temple, there was this place called the most holy place. It's where God's presence dwelt, his physical presence dwelt. And what's interesting is only one person could go in there once a year. It was the high priest. And God had specifications of how they were going to make this place. Look at it, Exodus 25. It says, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. Look at this. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. And so when you engage with God's presence, usually there are cherubim around God attending and bringing him worship. I get it, right? When you read chapter four, it can be a lot. Right, you can get very confused very fast because it breaks our perception of heaven. Right, when we think of heaven, if we have a vision in our head of heaven, I doubt it looks much like Revelation chapter four. And yet John sees heaven. And he writes all these symbols. But here's what I want you to understand today. When you reread chapter four, the point of the symbols is not your interpretation of them, but I want you to see their response to the one who sits on the throne. Because what you will see in heaven is everything revolves around God and his throne. And everybody responds the same way. In fact, let me show you the response of the four creatures. It says, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Those words sound familiar, we just sang them. We sang the words of scripture, what the cherubim say to God day and night. They never stop saying the words that we sang today. 
And look at the response. It says, when the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. And guess what happens? The 24 elders fall down. The people of God fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before him and say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So when we study this passage and we zoom in on the throne, what we see is what all creation does. It responds to the throne. And I get it today, maybe you learned something new, but here's what I want us to understand and here's what I want us to ask. Right? As we look at Revelation chapter four, I hope today that it made sense to you. I hope today that you, maybe you learned something new, but that's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is not for us to be really smart Christians who are puffed up with a lot of head knowledge. We need biblical literacy. We need to know our Bible. But the point of the Bible is to sanctify us, transform us. And so when we read God's word every single Sunday, the goal is that we would leave here looking more like Jesus, that he would transform us, that he would mold us and craft us into better dads and moms, to better people, better people who walk closer with him. And so the question we have to ask is, based off of what I know, how will it change me? How will Revelation chapter four today make me different tomorrow? And I think John answers that question for us. We're through the imagery of a throne. Because here's what I know about my life, and here's what I know about your life. We all have a central throne in our lives. Every single one of us has a throne in our heart and at that throne is where we go for truth. At that throne is where we go for direction. At that throne is where it leads and guides our life. It's what we submit to. At that throne in our hearts is the central control system of who we are, the men and the women that we become. You see, we all have a throne in our lives. But John forces a reckoning to me and you. He forces us to ask the question, who's sitting on your throne? Who is taking up the space of the throne of your life? Where are you going for truth? Where are you going to submit your life to? Who is controlling the central control system of your life? And here's what I would bet, because I see it in my life so much, is honestly, In most cases, you know who sits on the throne? It's me, and it's you. Because I told you at the beginning, we all long for a throne. I long for a throne, like in my life, I wanna be in control. I wanna steer the ship. I wanna have a say. I wanna direct my path. I wanna point my life and posture my life to where I want to go. And for many of us, the greatest obstacle to the right person sitting on your throne is you actually gotta get out of the throne. You gotta get up and relinquish the control of your life. But for many of you, it might not just be you, it might be your kids, it might be your job, it might be your relationships, it might be your finances. I don't know what is controlling and dictating how you make decisions and where you find truth. But John forces us to ask the question as he looks at heaven and he sees a throne, hey, who is sitting right here in your life? And here's what we have to understand, whoever sits on your throne controls the direction of your life. Whoever sits here postures your life to become the man or woman that you will become. They set the direction of who you will be. 
Whoever sits on your throne will dictate the marriage that you have. Whoever sits in that seat will dictate how you approach dating to find your forever spouse. Whoever sits on your throne will, will, will change the way you handle your finances, the way you handle conflict, what comes out of your mouth, how you love others, how you live your life. Whoever sits there will change every nook and cranny about you. So can I ask you again, who's sitting on your throne? And if you don't know the answer to that question, I get it takes time to think about that, but if you don't know the answer to that, follow the trail of your life. Honestly, look back just this week and ask yourself, what decisions did I make? Did I ever ask God or did I just go about it? Look at the trail of your calendar. How did you spend your time? Did you ever ask God, hey, should I do these things? Hey, look at the trail of your money and where you invested things. Did you ever ask God, is this a worthy cause to give to? Follow the trail of your life and I promise you, it will give you a clear, beautiful picture of who is sitting there. And here's what John does in Revelation chapter four. He makes this declaration as he sees heaven, the ultimate destination, the place that we long for. The very first thing he sees is a throne, not an empty throne, but one sitting at that throne. And here's what he declares to you and I, the only one worthy of your throne is Jesus. The only one worthy to sit in that place of your life is Jesus. And I get it, right? Most of us as Christians, we say amen, and it's a battle that we wage war every day to get out of the chair and let God sit there. But I understand there's some people here today like, okay, I, I get that's a churchy thing to say, but like, I'm not convinced that Jesus, why is Jesus the only one worthy to sit there? Like, why am I not worthy? Why, why are you worthy? Like, what, what makes Jesus different than us? Well, John answers that question in the next chapter, Revelation 5. It says, in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb. Okay, so he's worthy of the throne. Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. You see, the reason why Jesus is worthy and you're not is because he defeated an enemy you couldn't defeat. Jesus is worthy because he went to a cross that you couldn't bear the weight of that cross where he died in your place and paid your penalty to overcome sin for you so that you could have life. Through his resurrection, he defeated that enemy and he hands you the keys to a beautiful life. He's worthy because he took your place. He died in your place. He was slain for you. And because of that, he is the only one worthy to sit in that seat. I love how he ends. He says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And look at the response. Every symbol in heaven around the throne, in front of the throne, coming from the throne. Look what it says. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that was in them saying to him, who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. You see, as we look at Revelation chapter four, our gaze shouldn't be caught up in all the symbols. Our gaze should be focused on the throne and who's sitting there. And so today as you go home, as you log off online, as you leave our physical campuses, 
throughout this week, my goal for you is for you to ponder, for you to marinate, for you to think about that question. When you look at your life, who's sitting on that throne? And if you don't know the question, follow the trail. Follow the trail of your life. Follow the trail of your decisions. Follow the trail of your money. Follow the trail of your time and your talents. And when you see who's sitting there, ask yourself this question. Are they worthy of your throne? Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for your word. Thank you that even though at times it can seem confusing and odd, it's so good that when we take the time to discover what you are trying to say to us, that your word is alive and active, that it will penetrate our hearts. And I pray, God, for my life and so many other people's lives that today we'd walk out of here sanctified, that we would be different because of the throne and who sits there. And God, I pray that in my life, when I choose to sit in that throne, that you'd kick my butt out of there. God, I pray for every individual. When we get it confused, when we think we're in control, you'd remind us that we don't even have a throne. That's your throne, and we don't belong. So help us to see that, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.